Welcome everybody to episode 219 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, featuring myself, Ben. And I am David. And what do we have in store for us today? We have some men who are not only made of snow, they are abominable. No, we have, the, we have our keenly <laughs> awaited review of the, or discussion, not really review, of the new animated version of Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowmen. Yeah, it's the, well, at the time when this came out, was to be the last Doctor Who animation for the foreseeable future. But There was much wailing and gnashing of teeth on social media about that, but... The rumor, uh, was it the mirror that had an article? I think, and the mirror, I think the mirror traditionally has actually been pretty accurate. Uh, mm-hmm. When it comes to Doctor Who stuff, so there you go. Yeah, the mirror said the smugglers and a new version of the faceless, no, of the underwater uh, menace, un- underwater menace. Yeah, yeah. What do you make of those? Odd choices. Yeah, I'm... yeah. Odd choices. I'd have said smugglers, kind of an odd choice, and we've already got the underwater menace a little bit. I would be surprised if there aren't more animations off the back of you know the new reboot of the of the show. Mm-hmm. especially, you know, this much-talked-about Disney money um, that's coming in. So, yeah. anyway, that's my view. I, I, I don't find this very surprising news. Mm-hmm. I would be interested to see who's doing the animations. Yeah, it, I wonder if it'll be Digitunes again, because they're the ones who did an abominable snowman here. Yeah, yeah. Well, the last time, so as, as, as our listener will know, I'm off to the Galley 1 again in February, and, of course, last year at this time, we got a preview of the Barnable Stowman from um, the mighty Gary Russell himself. So, yeah, fingers crossed. That he'll uh, have Maybe the smugglers. Maybe some animation previews. <laughs> or storyboards from the smugglers. Here's the smugglers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 mean I, I don't think I've ever even really paid much attention to the, even the soundtrack of the smugglers. Hmm. Um, I've read the novelization. Um, mm-hmm. That's pretty much it for me when it comes to smugglers. I think it's a it's a interesting story. It's it's almost as, as if that's Hartnell's really farewell story because he's really into it. Unlike Tenth Planet, where he spends much of the time convalescing, I right, think right. Hartnell enjoyed the historicals and felt more at home, probably at least towards the end of his tenure in historicals than he would have had in sci-fi. And the smugglers, you know, I mean, they're kind of standard British children's fiction characters, you know, Dr. Sin and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. Treasure Island. Uh, it's, you know, th- those books about smuggling and smugglers would be the kind of books that Hartnell would have read as a kid. So mm. yeah. He could. He had a, a finger a finger on the pulse of that genre. <laughs> he did. He did. He enjoyed stories of smuggling brandy across the channel. Mm-hmm. or whatever the smugglers are up to. Anyway. So yeah. I would be surprised, though, if Gary Russell's team would do, the Big Finish team would do uh, The Underwater Menace. I would think that it would lend itself more towards the other team, the original new team that did right. Power, because they already right. have the Ben and Polly characters. Yeah. What I'd be interested in, since we're kind about of it. diving yeah. into this, if, yeah, is, is the Big Finish team that did the moon base that's a good one because that i thought had a really good uh ben polly and uh, jamie who are all been in the underwater menace so i think that would be uh if, if i had my had my choice of team if they could uh revive that uh, animation yeah. team i think that would be a good good mesh because 
much like the moon base uh, underwater menace is missing a couple episodes and the animation slotted in very nicely i thought good mesh between the live action and the animation and i think it was mostly down due to rotoscoping live action and then animating on top of it the main beef i have with the gary russell helmed animations is is there's too much space uh, there's too much empty space and mm-hmm. that moon base animation with the rotoscoping of live action really kind of sort of tried to address address the flatness of some of these some of these other animations well it's like with the power of the dalek special edition where instead of having okay you're in 16 by 9 widescreen format you still want to have that tight 3 by 4 placement of yep. the actors and you want to focus in on the faces and it's not animation friendly because you're not having a lot of animation on the faces, but just visually having larger uh, faces, not the whole uh, character silhouette on there and locking off in camera and having the whole set. It, it lends itself or it feels more 1960s Doctor Who to do it that yeah. way. When, and if you talk about base under siege or monastery under siege or, you know, things under siege, the the claustrophobia that you get from these drowned stories of you know the the Good Street Fortress and stuff, mm-hmm. you kind of lose that if you have this kind of widescreen panorama of like well that's they're fine they've got like a huge amount of space to walk around in. I wonder if Gary Russell is a big fan of Richard Martin because it it seems to be almost a Richard Martin style production that he does where he locks off the camera or just have the actors or the animated characters just coming in in and out of the scene where other directors like um well just just for example Gerald Blake who directed the live action Abominable Snowman did tighter shots and yeah. you have that 1960s strategic placing of the actors so you have like three four five different faces in there at different layers of depth yeah and having a conversation. So yeah, we'll you know see. What, you know what I should do? I should ask Gary at the convention because he's always there and he's coming to this one. Yeah. I'll hang out with him and say, Gary, what's the deal? Why don't you have close up on the faces? And he'll tell me. Yeah, that'd be good. It'd be, Maybe. I think it'd be a, a fair question to ask because. I think it would be a fair question because I'm not, it's, it's not, it's not, a, I mean, I don't like it, but it's not a criticism. If you see what I mean? It's simply yeah. like, you know, you, you have this widescreen kind of spaghetti Western sort of sensibility. But, or in fact, you actually you don't. You have a widescreen because spaghetti westerns have a lot of heavy close-up of faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have this widescreen sensibility, this kind of locked-off way of presenting the action. Uh, what's your reason, reasoning behind that, Gary? Yeah. I think he's a purist in that he won't trim up the soundtracks and tighten up yeah. it for animation. But then he doesn't follow like the camera script either then. So... Uh, granted the visuals are entirely new and the abominable snowman is probably the greatest difference from the live action due to the sympathetic illustration of tibetan characters rather than having white male actors being made up with uh, elastic stretching their eyes and, um, and face makeup the character design that digitunes did for this they all look tibetan rather than capture the likeness of the of the actors who played the characters in the live action version yeah which is actually a big plus for this being animated because you know and again no 
criticism because I think it's something that does need to be criticised, the difficulty that the talents of Wang Chang'an kind of gets itself into right. nowadays because of the yellow face there. The Abominable Snowmen would also have that difficulty, I, 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 I feel, because everyone in it are all white yeah. British people and they're all dressed up as Tibetan monks, mm-hmm. which, you know, was, I guess, fine in 19... 19- um, sixty-seven or whatever, wherever we are, but it's 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 not so good nowadays. Well, you would not have done the animation at all today in the style that you would have uh, cast it in nineteen sixty-seven. It just it would have been it is it'd be unacceptable. Yes, and so you have have the chance to revisualize it, and so Gary Russell was very firm before he even accepted a commission saying. I am not going to do likenesses of the actors. We're going to do uh, Asian characters uh, visually, and we're not going to we're not going to make it match the live action actors. Yeah, which is great. That works really well. And I think the, you know, as much as I mean, obviously I've watched all the extras on the on the disc, and it is it's great to have Toby and um, Fraser kind of revisit that particular bit of. Uh, Snowdonia to like look at locations but it's sort of obvious that a decision is made okay we're not going to try and make this look like Snowdonia um, we're actually going mm-hmm. to try and make this look like Tibet yeah and uh, you know the monastery is not going to look like what it looked like in the studio we're going to try and make a kind of a bigger a larger um, more convincing Tibetan monastery and I think they do a great job I mean the light Kind of obviously, I've never been to Tibet, but I, I fondly imagine the light is very strong there because it's high up when it's sunny, mm-hmm. and that comes across beautifully. And the mountains come across beautifully. This animation look looks really, really good. I think it does. I think it is an improvement uh, on what the Digitoons team did with Fury from the Deep. Yes, definitely. And it's the same same models that they have for Jamie the Doctor and Victoria. But they seem to have managed to rein in the rubbery arms that yep. plagued Fury from the Deep. Shorten the arms. And I don't even know if the arms are shortened, but the, the movements aren't so exaggerated. It just worked a lot better uh, conveying the story. And there was less distracting animation type tricks that they were doing allowing for me to focus in on the story and follow along rather than be distracted by uh, rubber arms or odd choices. And their Jamie, I think, is particularly good. Yes. They, they really have kind of pushed that character design a little bit. It's slightly tipped over into the cartoonish, um, which is great because it's a cartoon. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I really kind of enjoyed that characterization. So I think... Victoria too harder to do because she has a softer, less featured face. Mm-hmm. I could have done with the slightly more caricaturing of the second Doctor, but you know, again, they, they have the model that they have. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. yes, movements were a lot more, a lot more convincing than they were in the previous. I think it's harder to capture, like in the case of Deborah Watling, she's a very beautiful woman, and I think it's hard to capture that in flat two D animation. She's like you said, there isn't something that you really can latch onto of characterization like you can with Jamie or and even Pat Troughton. Right. So uh, right. I right. thought some of the character designs were a little distracting, and mostly Ralpacha, 
who had the two different color eyes and the scar, I thought was a little more distracting than needed to be for the story. And I'm, I'm not sure why they did that. Well, I mean, to, to me, I, I was, the, the one that I found the most distracting um, was Pad, uh, uh, Padma Sam. Padma Sadmava? Yeah. What it kind of reminded me of was the illustrations in the Target novelization where Padmasambhava is a kind of, you know, animated corpse, um, you know, a kind of a mummy mm -hmm. in those illustrations. He's not. He doesn't look like that in the um, no. in the telesnaps. You know, Wolf Morris is a pretty chunky, um, you know, he's covered with kind of plastic makeup, but um, he's a pretty chunky man. Um, I would be interested again to ask Gary um, why they decided to push that cartoon characterization and he doesn't also look very good either, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not quite sure what the decision, how, how that was, how that was arrived at. Yeah, I read in the Radio Times that Russell was saying that he's was a big fan or is a big fan of the classic Tales from the Crypt comic series. Oh. So he said he was a big fan of EC Comics. And so he was looking at Crypt Keeper and things like that. And this, that was the design that they decided to go with. Yeah, yeah, I can see, I can see that. Um, I think they could have done a better job with it, to be honest. Because I mean, I can see they were pushing it towards the kind of animated corpse uh, direction, which is yeah. fine. I like that. Because I said, I mean, that's that's actually how I first encountered this story with the, you know, the illustrations in, as I was saying, in in the, in the Target novelization. Yeah, I don't think they did it very well, though. He had that kind of weird sort of twisted mouth. That was which, odd. which was which was again an odd decision. Yeah, you know he's a deeply creepy character. You know it's it's a you know it's it's a similar uh, like all people who are possessed in Doctor Who. You know this uh, the schizophrenia between you know the original personality and the possessed uh, the possessor is mm -hmm. kind of chilling, and the vocal performance that uh, what's his name Wolf puts in is 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 amazing, and I don't really feel it was well served by the animation decision sorry gary well i think the makeup that wolf morris had with padma Samava, it, it felt more like he was a bloated corpse and then at the very end he just melted waste away melted away mm. when the great intelligence lost and Russell and team went in an entirely different direction where they had more of like a desiccated corpse and the Ganta, I guess uh, Patrick Troughton or the doctor was given it 300 years prior. So Padma Samava, uh, more than 300 years old at that point. So it's a mummy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a mummy. Maybe just different shadings and stuff, like yeah. uh, different textures, or I guess he was just too smooth. <laughs> <laughs> I felt it was too smooth. Yeah, I should be should have been a lot more mummified. Yeah, to me should have been perhaps a lot less animated. I you know the movement should have been mm -hmm. perhaps more jerky. But I mean, I always imagine this character. You know the kind of stories you read about. Um, you know, mummified lamas and mummified yogis. You know, and the mm. the kind of Tibetan Buddhist tradition of of you know someone who's reached such a high level of enlightenment that they've you know kind of conquered death. Mm -hmm. um, um, apologies if I'm if I'm butchering Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism there, but you know that's that's what I've always imagined him as. So you know, it's 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 almost like um, you know he's a Marcus Scarman. You know, the, the, it's it's he's his character is yeah. completely subsumed yeah. by. A, 
a, you know, an eldritch force from the, you know, from the beginning of the universe. Mm -hmm. And he has been kept alive unnaturally for centuries. Yeah. Which is great pulp drama not really brought the horror of that's not really well brought out by that animation no it's more again it's more cartoony but now that you mention it this is really a pulp serial this is definitely trying to capture that 1930s 1940s amazing stories type pulp oh yeah sensation where you have the monster hunter uh jack watling professor travers trying to find the yeti he mistakes them for the newspaper reporters of the doctor and Jamie and Victoria. Uh, it all sort of fits within this 1930s pulp serial type drama that uh, probably Lincoln and Hazeman read as kids. Yeah, it's it's Doctor Who and the and the the Temple of De- Doctor Who and the and the Monastery of Doom. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, what it is. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, one one thing that this that you know, be able to spend time watching animation really brought out for me is that is what I think is something is it's not well acknowledged by Doctor Who fans um, because we always like our show to be you know to reflect our own views, mm-hmm. but you know late sixties Doctor Who is so reactionary, um, mm. and uh, you know it's it, it really doesn't address the only way it ever addresses you know what was going on culturally. In the world, 1967, 1968, 1969, is to push back against it. So the villains of this story are the people who are into transcendental meditation and astral journeys. And, you know, if you do go on an astral journey, you're, you're going to pick up an evil monster that's going to take you over. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the abbot, who is kind of counseling peace and, you know, acceptance and nonviolence, He's the bad one who gets his comeuppance. Um, the, well, the, he, he kills Chris. Exactly. He's the <laughs> he's the, the and the, the soldier, the person who is counselling. No, no, we must fight. Um, right. Uh, he's the you know he's the good guy. Um, so this mm-hmm. idea that you know in some ways the Doctor Who in the sixties was in some way kind of reflecting this sort of peace and love generation. Well, it it, it never was and it never did. Um, it's the seventies when Doctor Who really comes into its own as a kind of a countercultural narrative. In the late sixties, it was reactionary as hell um, and was mm-hmm. saying to kids, you know, kids don't do drugs, don't like Buddhism, um, don't be peaceful, um, go out and fight for 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 what's right. And I mean, just like the Dominators, which again is you know is the same another Hazeman and the Lincoln. same writing team. Yeah. It's the hippies who are the who are the bad ones, mm-hmm. uh, and who you know because of their kind of passive, peace loving attitudes, um, get screwed over by the Quarks and the Dominators. Yeah, they are kind of well, they are definitely very reactionary, 100%, but it yep. does tell a good story. They're kind of like Heinlein in a way that <laughs> yeah, that's you know, true. It's yeah, coming from a. A, a right-wing perspective, but they still tell a really solid story. And uh, this this story, famously, Pat Troughton wrote a postcard to Hazeman and Lincoln, said, uh, you know, more please. These, this was fantastic. You know, Pat was really into this story. And to me, again, it's kind of so funny that in Web of Fear, they're the introduced unit and they introduce, well, so they introduce the brigadier, so the colonel, right. and then... He becomes a major character. Unit become a major part of the story in the seventies. You basically the British Army are the good guys, and I, I can always remember. You know when when I started reading the Virgin New Adventures in the in the kind of late eighties, early no, early nineties, 
um, the kind of somersaults that New Adventures had to do to kind of try and turn UNIT into something that was kind of peaceful and loving and countercultural, when actually the originators of that storyline of, of, the, of the Doctor allied with the army were reactionary old men like these two writers. <laughs> well, the Brigadier is modeled after... I can't remember of the Aiden crisis. Oh yeah, it's Mad Mike Hoare or someone, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's one yeah. Of those. yeah. So again, uh, a very right wing figure was the inspiration for the Brigadier, and it really wasn't until, like you said, this seventies, uh, uh, really guided by uh, Barry Letts, who a was a practicing Buddhist, <laughs> that that it uh, yeah. was a. Uh, Kind of a reaction in uh, the Brigadier was constantly getting his comeuppance and the stuff like the season seven stuff where the Brigadier says, you know, screw it. We're just going to blow up the Silurians because that's the right thing to do. Um, it isn't until Barry Letts really takes over that it's a counter and then you get Choji at the very end. Right. With, again, played by a Westerner uh, playing a Tibetan character. But you're, you haven't revisiting of Tibetanism, of, of, of Buddhism, that Let's wanted. And it's a reaction going back to he thought the Tibetan or the Buddhist were misrepresented in the Web of Fear. Is, 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 he, is, he, is he on record of, of, of saying I believe that? so. I'd have to go uh, dig through How sources. interesting. But, um, I didn't know that, e- right. Either, either he said that or um, Dick, Dick said that. It, it might be even on the uh, Planet of Spiders commentary but i'm pretty certain that the tibetan buddhism in planet of spiders was uh barry let's uh response riposte to right. that of the abominable snowman for hazeman and lincoln interesting yeah 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 Huh. And again, you know, I mean, there's a similar kind of astral journey that gets the plot moving in Planet of Spiders, but, you know, it's presented in a very different, very much so, very kind of different way, which is, yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's, I, I think it's, I think it's super interesting. I mean, there was a whole kind of undercurrent of British TV and movie making in the, in the, particularly, I think, in the late 60s, which was very reactionary. Mm-hmm. Um older greatest generation culture whatever we want to call it you know non non boomer culture was really worried about what was going on with the kids yeah uh, and i think one one way of addressing what was going on with the kids is to give the media that told them that you know you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't get involved in buddhism um you shouldn't be all peaceful and loving etc cetera, etc cetera. there's a really interesting movie called alfred the great which was made i think roughly the same time i think it's, it's either 67 or 68 with David Hemmings, um, who was, you know, the kind of blow up, etc., was a kind of icon of the counterculture, um, as Alfred the Great, you know, the the, the famous Anglo-Saxon king, mm-hmm. and that's a completely reactionary movie. It basically so that you you shouldn't you shouldn't love people, you shouldn't be peaceful, you shouldn't be studious. Um, you need to pick up your sword. You need to go out and fight. And it's so I think it's just so interesting that you know our current narrative of the 60s was like everybody was in favor of hippies. Um, and it was like, you know, this is a thing that was going to happen. But actually, there were large sections of culture that were presenting material that was very, very against what was coming out of 1967 and 1968. Yeah, I think uh, Alfred the Great was 1969. So definitely kind of 69. putting a spike through the 1960s uh, reactionary yeah. response, closing out the decade that way. 
yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, but it, it, it was it was I I really enjoyed having those thoughts um, while watching this because I, I unlike the soundtracks which you know I have engaged with in the past I I I'm, I'm a pretty visual person mm-hmm. and whereas I have difficulties with some aspects of the way that things are animated they really help me watch um, and they really help me listen and uh, in that way I. I've gained a lot of insight on these animated stories through them being animated. I was able to follow it a lot better than I ever had before. Because you're a big fan of this audio, right? I I do love the audio. And for the longest time, my number one episode that I wish would be returned from this was episode one, probably because I've heard it so many times. But I I love the, the scene when the doctor's digging through the trunk. Uh, and finding the, you know, they're searching for the Ganta and just the right. this the um, all the location filming at the beginning and I think it would be very atmospheric and fun to see. But I was really pretty impressed by uh, episode four too, where the plot really starts kicking into overdrive, and I think that would be one of the great ones too. And I was and it reminded me a lot of the web of fear where episode four is the battle of covent garden where it really it with the hazeman and lincoln stories it seems that that fourth episode dials up to 11 the attention and the intensity and uh kicks it further afield you know it, it just i think if i had to choose of the remaining five episodes missing uh four and one would be my my choices you know granted you get what you get but <laughs> yeah what'd you get and as, as much as i've just spent you know the past 10 minutes to say kind of you know implicitly criticizing hazeman and lincoln that they do it's a cracking story. Oh, yeah. And Web of Fear is a cracking story as well. And also, actually, I really like The Dominators. It, that's kind of a cracking story, too. I mean, <laughs> it's it is a funny bit, as heck, too. It's funny. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot more saggy than, 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 yeah. than, the bomb, than both of the great intelligence stories. But, you know, it's, this is six episodes that uh, there's no drag in this at all. I am not looking at my watch at any point over six episodes i'm going like yeah this is cool this is cool this is still cool i'm still enjoying this so Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, where i think the drag is is the loss between an actor portrayed drama and a uh, animated cartoon portrayed drama so right uh what they did way back when with um cosgrove hall with the animation for the invasion for the long pauses and stuff, they would clip them. They would tighten it yeah. up. Gary Russell being the purest of this particular ilk, where he'll add to the soundtrack, but he won't reduce it anyway. You get some of these long pauses where animated characters are walking across the room uninterestingly. <laughs> and I think I would have uh, tightened it up a little bit. I'd love to be able to really question gary russell on his thought process because obviously you know he plays fast and loose with aspects of the visuals but mm-hmm. you're right some snipping of the soundtrack here would have helped would have helped greatly i mean it is it, I, I actually kind of kind of kind of it's kind of funny when that happens um where there's obviously some business going on that we have no idea what that is and we never will unless we get the episode returned and characters mm-hmm. just, just sort of stand until that bit of the soundtrack has played itself out and you know, then the next scene comes on. So Yeah. I just do question some of the choices he makes. And going back like to Fury from the Deep, we know what color 
the doctor's bobble hat was. And instead of putting him in a, in a red Santa hat uh, like they did for the animation, why not just put him in a blue bobble hat? I don't understand some of the choices that he makes. And he says he's a purist. But then when you know something, he diverts from it. So I, I think it's yeah. kind of a smorgasbord approach to his purity. Yeah, and I think, as I said, I, I just like, I'd like to be able to run through with him each of his changes and say, like, okay, why did you do that? Like, mm-hmm. when you, you could have given the Doctor an awesome helicopter in Fury of the Deep. <laughs> um, you yeah. just chose to animate the crap one that they had uh, at the time, even yeah. though, you know, you don't actually do the helicopter stunts that that crap helicopter was able to do. Um, and I just think, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I think... And then this is not a criticism of Gary. This is simply, I think he's probably got a very different brain to mine mm. and has different priorities and different ways of thinking about things. You know, I guess he was an actor, right? He was a child actor. Mm. So, you know, he maybe he thinks, well, no, this, the, the acting, the soundtrack, that is the, the sacrosanct piece. And I can mess around with the visuals as much as I want, um, even down to, you know, to my mind, making the visuals sort of less, slightly less effective. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the set design? It looked like it was 3D uh, modeled set designs with uh, 2D animated characters going through it. Yeah, I, I, which which works from time to time. Um, when you do something that is very obviously, um, so the collapse of the of the Bodhisattva, you know, the Buddhist statue at the back was really kind of oh yeah, that's just some lumps of computer animated nonsense falling Mm -hmm. apart you know i was looking for kind of you know clouds of dust and something a bit more animated Um, so sometimes that doesn't work but by and large i think the the monastery looked great did you watch this in black and white or in color i watched it in color yeah so did i i thought some of the textures uh like for the hay or the straw for the mattresses was a little distracting and the burlap or whatever type of fabric they had to separate the the Padmasamatha's chamber from his inner sanctum from the outer sanctum, it didn't work for me. And then nope. at at some point in one of the first first three episodes, probably episode three, there was a logo on it that uh, I think was the logo of the texture. <laughs> texture company oh really oh i missed that that mess yeah and it's this sort of like i'm not sure this works very well i'm it's a stretch sometimes with with what do you choose for the 3d sets and what do you do for 2d and i missed the skill of rob ritchie's compositions in this i think in it who's in the who's in the other team yeah yeah no i agree I, I was really confused by the straw mattresses because I'd always, again, assumed that what they were mattresses stuffed with straw, not a big pile of straw that people slept on. Um, so, you know, it's it's a and, and again, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe well, I, they are llamas. Maybe I haven't looked. <laughs> they are straw consuming uh, ruminants. Um, I've looked at the tally snaps close enough. Maybe the llamas did sleep on literal beds of straw. I think so. I don't know. I thought also there was not enough extras in certain scenes. I would expect to see more monks rather than just the named cast just milling around in the background or anything like that. And I I 
I didn't do a shot-by-shot comparison with telesnaps to see how many extras there were. And there were scenes when the Yeti invaded and trashed the monastery that you had more monks. Well, I mean, I think if you counted up the Yeti control models, there could have been a lot more Mm -hmm. Yeti as well. I mean, you know, if you're really going to push it, let's add more Yeti in there. Let's have like 12 Yeti Mm -hmm. or something. Let's have a whole bunch of them stomping around and being, being mean to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a couple of two. There's a couple of couple of, of pieces of com- computer animation that I really thought worked brilliantly. One is the Yeti control balls, which I thought were amazing and super convincing. Mm-hmm. And they rolled around, and they had a kind of weird light coming out of them. And I really enjoyed them yep. a huge amount. Yep. The other piece of, of animation, computer animation that worked, worked very well, was the Great Intelligence spilling out of the cave which uh, again as far as i can understand by looking at the kind of clips and telesnaps and stuff that was foam um <laughs> of course uh, which it's was basically was, it was the Troughton era shorthand for evil substance it's, mm-hmm. it's just some foam but they didn't do foam thankfully which they could have done because i mean they have foam left over from fury from, from fury of the deep <laughs> um they could have done a foam effect but they did this amazing kind of light kind of creeping light effect which i thought was very effective and a lot more convincing than a bunch of foam would have been yeah it was a web of fear it was literally a web of fear (laughs) yeah yeah it was prefiguring the next yeah the next episode yeah so i was a little bit thrown off by the yeti design and my son elliot and i had a discussion whether the abominable snowman in the abominable snowman had eyes or not and i've always been of the opinion that they have eyes and Elliot's comeback to that was, well, that's just because you grew up with a Target novel cover where they do have eyes. Whoa, sick burn. <laughs> yeah. If you look at the costumes, you can't really see the eyes. So I'm surfing the internet and looking at uh, <laughs> pictures saying, well, no, the Yeti actually kind of have an owl-like beak. And if you catch them from the right a- angle, you can kind of see a glint of black eyes there. And so we're we're going down into this <laughs> costuming type decision because the characters for the animation didn't have any eyes. And where do you come down on the big eye debate? I'm I'm afraid I'm I'm in the anti Elliot camp. I'm in the pro David camp. <laughs> Again, you're animating it. Give them some eyes. I mean, they have eyes in in the web of fear. I mean, mm-hmm. big kind of glowing, giant eyes. Um, the the Chris Achilles cover. For the Target novel, you know, the Yeti have creepy little eyes. Yep. And as far as I remember, they uh, maybe there's the illustrations inside. You know, they have horrible spiky mouths as well. They have little kind of... Fangs. Uh, yeah, fangs, like a like almost like a drashig style, you know, like a like a like a maggot, mm-hmm. um, like a giant maggot, little giant maggot mouths, which are really creepy and horrible and frightening and actually a lot more intimidating than the kind of muppets stalking around with web guns in um in web of fear yeah so yeah i i would have i would have said to, to digitunes give them some creepy eyes give them some little glinty creepy eyes and give them little creepy mouths so when they're roaring you know they open their mouths and a roar comes out so but they don't roar in the abominable snowman though oh don't they no that's that that's uh the yeti 2.0 Oh, and, uh, I'm, 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 okay. I'm, 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 I'm projecting my desire for them to roar uh, <laughs> onto them, not actually roaring at all. But uh, well, okay, yeah, oh, no, they should roar, right. like when they're attacking. Because Russell did add 
bumps and stumps and stuff uh, to the soundtrack. He didn't detract for anything. He could have added Some roars. a Yeti roar. That would have been certainly controversial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, I mean, if he's gonna, if he's gonna, if he's gonna mess around with stuff, I mean, mess around with stuff, Russell. Come on. Yeah. So I, I was, I kept hoping for Yeti eyes, but there is no Yeti eyes. But they're good. I, I like these Yetis the best. I guess I like them better than the Web of Fury Yeti because they are. I, I like that play of where you have these teddy bear like monsters, but they're horrible. They're they're violent. They get people killed. Interestingly enough. Do the Yeti actually kill anyone? The, uh, Rin Chen is killed by the toppling Buddha statue. But right. is anyone actually killed directly by the Yeti in this one? No. I mean, the, I think the Yeti, they're kind of Scooby-Doo monsters. I mean, they come in and they wreck stuff in order to scare people away. Yeah. They're not particularly aggressive <laughs> uh, towards people individually. But what, what I, you know, their, pl- their evil plan, um, such as it is, is to convince the monks to leave the monastery mm-hmm. for sort of undisclosed reasons. Uh, I don't know why the great intelligence wants the monks to leave the monastery, but that's what the Yeti are there for. Yeah, it's never been explained why the great intelligence needed the monastery and the mountain to himself or to that's itself. All. But yeah, well, this I think I, I, we we've talked about this before. I mean, this is what I, I like, kind of like about the great intelligence. It's really not that intelligent, um, <laughs> and, and it and it, it makes decisions that are kind of in, incomprehensible yeah. to people who have kind of rational understanding of, of decision making, uh, which I like about it. It's it's almost like this kind of thing. It's you know, it's completely chaotic and uh, not rational, which yeah. I like. It, the great intelligence thinks it's clever but really it thinks it's all that yeah it's it's really not (laughs) no it's really not that at all it thinks that the most scary thing it can possibly come up with is some yeti um (laughs) you know which is spend 200 years and whip your uh uh, puppet cadaver building robot yetis (laughs) building robot yeti in secret or something i don't know for the sole purpose of scaring away some monks for some undisclosed reason from a monastery (laughs) But as then, you know, the, the the story is so well told, uh, you know, that actually the the Scooby Dooness of the whole thing really doesn't come across mm-hmm. um, unless you actually sit down and think about it. I'm, I, I guess maybe I'm referencing Scooby Doo because because of the animation, which you know is is mm-hmm. is Hanna Barbera ish. Well, definitely Hanna Barbera style was the Yeti at the end, which honestly I was kind of disappointed to see kind of a white Yeti. You know how did how did Travers mistake the robot Yeti for the abominable snowman that he was coming to look for? Yeah, and it pretty much was. I mean, I think they had the Yeti on Scooby Doo, and it, it actually it looked like a Scooby Doo Yeti. Yeah, is what it looked yeah, like. Yeah, it, and, it did. Yeah. And I, I, in some ways, now thinking about it, since we're talking about it, I'm thinking that's what Gary Russell was doing. He said, "Okay, this is a Scooby Doo Yeti that we're going to do, and it's got flares, and it's not going to be very convincing." We probably should have uh, ended instead of uh, with the Doctor Who theme yeah. and with Scooby Doo. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you it's old man Padma Bantadavada. Literally, old man. He would have gotten away with it. You pesky kids. I'm just about to run out of gas on my computer, so I'm just going to go and get a plug in. Hang on. All right. Scooby Dooby Doo, where are you? We got some work to Where are you? We need some help from you now. Come on, Scooby-Doo. I see. 
going back. Got a new team of hamsters hooked up. Yep. A, a, a new team of Yeti pumping away on the wheel. <laughs> Excellent. Where were we? I watched this originally in, in color, and then I watched the surviving episode at the end as a palate cleanser, and then I looked at the reconstruction for episodes one, three, and four. I ran out of time. And the reconstruction is quite good, too. There's oh, cool. um, okay. 3D animation in it in bits. Uh, they have some animated Yeti walking around with its... With oh, uh, nice. soft downy fur <laughs> blowing gently in the wind. It's a quality DVD Blu-ray presentation on this. And seeing it animated and being able to follow along the story just made me wish so much for this to be returned <laughs> back to the archive. Yeah. Just, just even one or two more episodes would be fantastic just to see... See Troughton, Watling, and Hines uh, is such a joy in the in the episode two, and right. it's representational uh, with the animation, and you know who's talking, and you know what's being seen on the screen better than you do with a, a, a soundtrack. But you're still missing so much, and it just cries out for this to be returned. If, if it exists anywhere, I hope some collector in his or her heart wills it to the BBC or something and doesn't let their estate just put it in the dustbin and have it be lost forever. Because I suspect that these were returned from Australia back in you know early 70s and they were pick, picked off a loading deck and they're possibly in a collector's uh, private right. collection somewhere. Have you been following that kind of collection return thing on Twitter with that guy who's going through that estate yeah. in Australia. I mean, that sounds kind of interesting. I don't know whether, you know. It does. I think the only hope for Doctor Who would be um, perhaps some of the episodes of Space Pirates. But oh, really? uh, as okay. far as I understand, most or if not all the humanic tapes for that collector's early uh, recordings were destroyed oh okay all right you've also been following it more closely than i have then. yeah i think it's mostly going to be uh more australia specific content right uh, but if it's anything it'll probably be space pirates and i don't think there's a lot of hope and optimism there but you know i'm you've been proved wrong you know, before no you haven't well we'll believe it when we see it i guess <laughs> we'll believe it when we see it yes there's no point in not believing it mm -hmm. until so, yeah, but uh, hopefully, exactly. hopefully we'll get the Space Pirates and then get the uh, Season 6 collection with uh, completed uh, <laughs> Space Pirates. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Watching the episode, um, the only surviving episode is, a, is kind of a downer because it's so good. And you can see why this one has stuck in the minds of people who saw it originally mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's just really good. Um, it's exciting and... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. It, I was going to say thrilling, but that also means exciting. It's a. It's a really exciting piece of pulp television. It's intriguing. Intriguing and engaging and captivating and well done and well acted and, um, you know, apart from the you know the whole we're pretending to be Tibetan thing, which oh, I'm just going to gloss over at this point. Um, but yeah, no, it's good. And it's one of the early target novelizations that Dix did, so he put a lot of a lot more effort in it than he did in the later 1970s. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. Uh, novelization, so it's a cracking story, both visually, uh, orally, and um, on the page. Yeah, absolutely, agreed, agreed. Definitely worth. Well, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you <laughs> you've already bought yourself a copy. I'd be astounded if you hadn't. Oh, but if you haven't. 
I think you should buy a copy because it's really good. Yeah. I'm taking my copy with me to Gallifrey One to get it signed by Gally, Gary Russell. Oh, excellent. I think. Yeah. Well, why not? And then you can ask him questions. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> sit down. I'm going to ask you some questions is what I'll say to Gary Russell. This is more of a form of a comment, but <laughs> <laughs> what is the formulation? This is more of a comment than a question. This but... is more of a comment than a question. That is, that is like when I shuffle up to the front um, with my <laughs> scarf and fez, I go, yeah, this is more of a comment than a question. And then I just ramble for five minutes and then I shuffle off again. And everyone mm-hmm. looks bemused. Sorry, that's being mean about a particular kind of fan, and I shouldn't do that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't actually ask a question, maybe don't get in line. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Allow someone to wrestle you to the ground and drag you off by your scarf. Um, <laughs> and so it's for someone who really has a question that must be answered, which is yes. why didn't you give the doctor a good helicopter rather than a crap one? <laughs> That is a question. It is. Which it, it is. It is. It is. It is proposed in the form of a question. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we've come to the end of the animation here for, I guess, the foreseeable future. Unless the uh, mirror story is correct, we'll see two animations in uh, the 60th anniversary year here in 2023. It's open. The other bit of news was that they're going to colorize <laughs> the unearthly child. Yeah, I, we're, we're going to talk about this now, right? I mean, where, where, do, you, where yeah, do you stand well, yeah. on the colorization thing? I think if you get a good colorist in there, um, say of, of the Clayton Hickman caliber and some of the other people who have done Doctor Who colorizations, and Hickman's working right now in Hancock Half Hour colorization, if you get sympathetic colorizers, I think it will be good. If you farm this out to whoever did Turner Classic Movies, it will be horrible. Yeah, I, that's that's. I mean, in in principle, I think it's a bad idea. I don't like it, but I do okay. understand that if we're going to attract new people to spend time watching old Who, um, colorization is probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. I think the technology has reached a point where it is both cheaper and also better. Mm-hmm. than it used to be yep. I think it needs it's not it's it needs a good it needs a good colorist you said it needs a good director um, who you know will be able to follow up on whatever decisions the AI makes in making in, in, you know in producing the color and tweak those so that it's so that it works I mean I, again I think it's I think it's inevitable and I think it'll be okay it's not something I'm particularly interested in Mm-hmm. What I like is the black and white episodes really cleaned up mm-hmm. and sharpened and and you know upgraded to to you know like you're watching a Hitchcock movie or something you know that it's it's a it's really good quality black and white that's what I like mm-hmm. um, I don't need color laid on top of that so over Christmas break I was watching on I think Amazon Prime I Dream of Genie. And the first season of I Dream and Genie only exists in black and white, but on Amazon Prime, it is in color. Interesting. So it's been colorized, and I was on a iPhone. I wasn't looking on a big screen, but the colorization in I Dream and Genie, the first season, on my phone looked pretty darn good. So, okay. again, differences in budgets, but if they get good sympathetic or good quality colorization, I think it will open up viewers' eyes 
who would not watch yes. the 60s at all. And I think it's a good step to take. Yep, agreed. When they say Unearthly Child, I wonder if they're only going to do the first episode because as much as I like <laughs> the quest for fire and Cal and... The tribe of gum. <laughs> I have a hard time thinking that uh, adding color to uh, 100,000 BC is going to make it... <laughs> <laughs> a fan favorite. No, you've got to slam straight into Scaro's favorites. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you colorize the first episode. It looks awesome. People like it. They want more. You skip straight to the, to the dead planet, I think, really, and you mm-hmm. come back to the quest for fire, or whatever the hell it is, later, at some future date. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I, mean, this was, I mean, this was always the problem when they would... Um, uh, I think in the seventies, you know, sorry, in the nineties, when they when they did these kind of fitful Doctor Who repeats on BBC Two, they'd always start at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, and it's like, well, this isn't very good. Uh, right. We're going to start watching it, so you know. Yeah. What do you think they do for a Troughton one if they do a Troughton story? A good question. Um, uh, tomb. Tomb. Yeah, that makes the most sense. It has Cybermen in it. it uh... Everyone knows Cybermen. You know, put some fezzes. There's fezzes in there as well. I think, aren't there? Mm, don't think so. Uh, doesn't what's his name wear a fez, or am I getting confused with somebody else? The logician? Uh, no, the Toberman. Toberman? No, Toberman doesn't wear a fez. He no. Okay, all right. Does he? I don't no, he. Uh, so, 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 I think you're confusing that with the evil of dogs with Sunny Kyle. Oh, I am Kyle sorry. Does. I'm consuming my my silent strong men. Um, begging their pardon. <laughs> uh, they are back to back stories. They are so. back to back, and they're kind of the same character. Um, so that's why I'm confused. Yes. Anyway, yeah. yes, I, I do too. I, that's that's one I do. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I think you can uh, do that justice with color. And I'm not. I don't think anyone is uh, in darkened up makeup for any of that too. So that would that's a, always a plus. Help. Always a plus. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a minefield. Right. Anyway, yes. Well, there you go, yeah. everybody. Um, Abominable Snowmen uh, and animations. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, uh, it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, it's not the best, but it's certainly not the worst. And I found it an enjoyable, enjoyable watch over two evenings. Definitely enjoyable watch over two evenings. Right. Well, thank you for listening to episode two hundred and nineteen of the Metabulous Two podcast. I have been uh, debating. Yeti eyes with Ben. And I've been kept alive for 300 years by an evil force from beyond space. Ooh. With David. <sighs> Peace at last. Uh, yeah, there you go. Peace uh, free, free at last. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for listening. Okay, well, I'll speak to you soon. Bye. <laughs>